You're listening to a sermon from Darabin Presbyterian Church. Visit us online for more resources or to get in touch. So like Aaron said, the um, reading is Acts chapter 4, verses 1 to 31. The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed, so the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. The next day, the rulers, the elders, and the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there, and so was Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and others of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realised that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then conferred together. What are we going to do with these men, they asked. Everyone living in Jerusalem knows that they have performed a notable sign and we cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn them to speak no longer to anyone in this name. Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, Which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. After further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. 
after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. Hi, everyone. My name is Adam. I'm one of the pastors here. It's great to see you all today. Um, You'll find an outline on the welcome card on our webpage. Uh, If that sort of thing is helpful for you, feel free to have that open. Uh, But let's pray and ask God to be with us now. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for this word, for this passage. Uh, We've already sung about the name of Jesus. We've just read a passage about the name of Jesus. And we pray that you be with us now as we think more uh, why this name is so great uh, and the impact that it has on our lives. Amen. What gives you the right? It's something that we've all heard as Christians. We've tried to speak to someone about Jesus or tell someone what Christians believe about a certain topic and the response is to dismiss us, to claim that we're arrogant or presumptuous. What gives you the right? Perhaps you've even said that yourself about Christians. I certainly said it before I became a believer. Uh, I remember once having a big conversation with another friend about those annoying Christians we came across at university. I was particularly indignant about their moral views around sexuality, wondering what gave them the right to tell people what they could do with their own bodies. And when it comes to matters of faith, people can be particularly sensitive And, you know, what gives anyone the right to tell us what to think about God? In fact, what gives God the right to tell us what we should do? This is what the first Christians had to grapple with. They made claims and they performed deeds that people didn't like. And the response they often got was, what gives you the right? Well, as we'll see in Acts chapter 4, verses 1 to 31, they didn't claim to have any rights or power but rather they wanted to point people to Jesus because he is the one who has the ultimate power and authority. As we get started, let's do a quick overview of the passage. Hopefully you remember from last week that Peter and John, two of the apostles, went to the temple to pray and there was a lame man sitting by one of the temple gates and they healed him. Miraculously, the guy could walk again. He was physically and spiritually restored. When all of the amazed people came around to to find out exactly what had happened, they made sure they really stressed that it wasn't about them, it wasn't their power or godliness that healed the man, it was by faith in the name of Jesus. Peter and John were just messengers pointing to Jesus, who was the Messiah and the one who will restore the whole world. Well, the story continues in chapter 4, and the Jewish leaders arrest the two apostles and interrogate them. In verse 7, they say, by what power or what name did you do this? In other words, what gives you the right to do such things? Well, Peter replies that it was by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And in fact, it's only by that name that anyone can be saved. Now, the Jewish leaders can't have these men running around proclaiming the name of Jesus because it would undermine their own authority. So they warn the apostles not to teach or speak in the name of Jesus anymore. Well, the two men are released and they rejoin the other believers and they respond by praying together. And they remember that no matter how powerful the Jewish leaders might be, 
God is actually the one who's in control. The believers are then empowered by the Holy Spirit to keep proclaiming the name of Jesus. So hopefully you've picked up that the name of Jesus is a key idea in this chapter. Uh, It's repeated six times, mentioned six times. And his name stands for who he is, what he has accomplished through his life, his death and his resurrection. It demonstrates that Jesus is still powerfully at work in the world, even though he's returned to heaven to be with the Father. The Jewish leaders ask the apostles, what gives you the right to which they answer the name of Jesus? This is a truth that we need to hold on to today. We might be strongly convinced that we should be telling people about Jesus and how to find true, lasting satisfaction in him. But it can be scary to do that because people are suspicious of Christianity and the truth claims that it makes. We can feel insecure and unsure about whether we'll say the right words and say them in the right way. We might even wonder whether it's even okay anymore to make objective statements about truth or try to convince people of what we believe. You know, what gives us the right? Well, as we'll see, we don't have the right, but Jesus does. And we say and do these things in his name, his name which is unique and powerful. So we're going to look at this under three headings. Jesus, it's the only name for eternal salvation. It's the only name for ultimate authority, with ultimate authority, and the only name for spirit-empowered proclamation. So let's start with Jesus, the only name by which people are saved. The people are astonished at how Peter and John healed a lame man. Have a look at verse 2 for the Jewish leader's reaction. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. Notice that they're not proclaiming that Jesus has risen from the dead. That's certainly true. What they're teaching is that other people can be raised up to new life in Jesus' name. He secured resurrection life for others. Most Jews believe that Uh, One day in the future, at the end, God would raise all people up to life and then they would be judged and they would receive punishment or reward. Peter and John are saying that through Jesus, people can be assured of resurrection to everlasting life. And this unsettled the Jewish leaders because it contradicted what they taught. For them, true life was found through Torah about reading the scriptures and submitting to God in life, in a life of obedience. Uh, True life was found through drawing near to the temple where animals were offered in sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins. To say that resurrection could be achieved through Jesus and his name undermined the entire Jewish way of life and the temple system that God had set up. And so they sense a threat to the Jewish faith. So they have Peter and John arrested. You can see in verses 5 and 6 that we have a gathering of the rulers, the elders, the teachers of the law, the high priest, and even key members of the high priest's family. This is possibly the ruling council known as the Sanhedrin, who'd actually met and condemned Jesus. This is pretty terrifying stuff. These are all the big guns. 
Yet Peter isn't phased. He's asked about the healing of the man born lame. You know, by what power or what name did you do this? And then we read his courageous speech in verses 8 to 12. I'll read it out. Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, well then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, and that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. This is pretty gutsy stuff. Peter tells the leaders that the healing was done in the name of Jesus. You know, that guy that you all crucified, well, guess what? God raised him back to new life and he's at work in the world. Peter then paraphrases Psalm 118, verse 22, to expand on this idea. He says, The leaders rejected Jesus as a worthless stone with no place in the building, yet God has revealed him to be the cornerstone, that key and foundational part of the building. Without him, there is no building. In other words, Jesus is the only name, the only name by which people are saved. And this is as controversial today as it was back then. The Bible says that none of the other religions will get you into heaven. They won't get you to God. It's as simple as that. But it's actually much more harder, much harder to grasp, to, to understand, to accept that. You may say, well, Adam, what gives Jesus the right to say that he's the only way to be saved? To which I could reply, well, God raised him from the dead and he continued to do miracles to show that he had authority. But I realise that still may not be enough for most people. So let's refresh ourselves and think again about the deeper meaning of the miracle in chapter 3. We looked at this last week. We saw that when the man was healed, he was allowed to go through the temple gates for the first time in his life, go onto the temple grounds, into the courtyard, He was physically restored so he could physically draw near to the temple to worship God. And so this points to the greater work that Jesus does when he spiritually restores people. It's so we can spiritually draw near to God and one day be with him forever. You see, unlike every other religion, every other belief system or faith, Jesus doesn't give us good advice. He doesn't give us a set of steps to achieve eternal life by our own efforts. No, Jesus saves us. Jesus knows that we don't simply need a leg up in life because we are spiritually lame. We cannot walk. We are broken, stubborn rebels who wander and stray. I know we just said that we're lame, so I'm mixing my metaphors here a bit, but hopefully you're with me. We're not worthy of the glorious God who is perfect in every way. And, you know, we like to compare ourselves to each other, go, well, I'm not as bad as that person, and you know, I'm doing heaps better than that person. But, but really, does it matter which rotten egg is the least rotten? We still all stink, don't we? So Jesus knows that we can't earn everlasting life. 
He knows that when God raises us up on that last day, on judgment day, when all things will be brought to account, that none of us will be good enough to be rewarded. And so he offers his own life in our place, his own perfect life. He died on the cross to deal with our rotten sinfulness so that our sins can be wiped away forever. He rose again to everlasting life so that when we are united to him by faith, we too can live forever. We can enjoy his resurrection life. See, only Jesus died and came back to life. Only Jesus invites us to repent and believe so that we can live forever. Only Jesus saves. There is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. It's the only name with ultimate authority, which brings us to our next point. The Jewish leaders, they're in a bit of a pickle. Have a look at verses 13 and 14. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who'd been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. So Peter and John, they speak boldly, as if they don't even care about the authority of the Jewish leaders. Yet, they're just fishermen. What gives them the right to say such things to the leaders? And they were also companions of Jesus, you know, that troublemaker. And so the leaders had better squash them and stop this Jesus movement. Yet they can't deny that a miracle has taken place. They're in a pickle. Because God seems to be at work amongst the followers of Jesus. And this undermines the authority of Israel's spiritual leaders. And so the best they can come up with is to try and silence the two apostles and command them not to speak or teach anymore in the name of Jesus. But have a look at what Peter and John say in reply. Verses 19 and 20. But Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. You see how they're turning the question back on the leaders. They're saying, well, what gives you the right to tell us what to do? What gives you the right to tell us we can't speak about Jesus? Clearly, there's a clash here about authority. Peter's already made this clear by quoting Psalm 118. That psalm, written centuries before, was originally about the king of Israel, uh, who'd faced great opposition from the surrounding nations. And it looked like all was lost, and then God rescued him and gave him an amazing victory. The world had rejected him like builders rejecting a stone, but God had set him as the the sure foundation, like the cornerstone of a building. Peter has said that Jesus is that king, that God has rescued and exalted Jesus. The Jewish leaders, they're like the attacking nations who oppose God and his king. These are serious claims, but Peter backs them up by saying Jesus has been risen from the dead and his ongoing miracles show that he is still at work. God the Father has appointed Jesus. So there's a clash of authority here. But it's perhaps not the sort of clash that we might think it is. 
See, while politics, you know, leadership type stuff is certainly involved here, I think this passage is less about who gets to govern the people and more about who gets to teach the people. After all, the reason why the Sadducees are so greatly disturbed in verse 2 is because the apostles were teaching about the resurrection. You may not know this, but the Sadducees denied the whole idea of bodily resurrection. And so they would not have been impressed by the apostles teaching this. And so a helpful way to remember this is that the Sadducees don't believe in life after death, and that's why they're so sad, you see. Yeah, that's right. It's a good one. <laughs> so there were also there were Sadducees, there were also Pharisees among the Jewish leaders, and they did believe in the resurrection, so they're okay with that. But they also believed that the Messiah would only come if all of Israel turned their hearts to God, repented, and followed the law. And as far as they were concerned, Jesus didn't teach the importance of following rules. So he couldn't possibly be a good teacher, let alone the Messiah. So, of course, in Jerusalem at the time, politics, morality, spirituality, they're all intertwined. But it seems that the clash here is over what people should be taught, how the scriptures should be interpreted, how to be saved and how to live a God-honouring life. The Sadducees and Pharisees want to maintain authority over the spiritual lives of the Jews. And they see Jesus as a massive threat to that. Therefore, these apostles have to be silenced. And so how might this relate to us today? Well, to put it simply, I think this is more about morality and less about lockdowns. Now, some have tried to use this passage to argue that Christians should ignore the government when it sends us into lockdown or puts restrictions on how we gather as a church. But can you see that that what's actually going on here, this is about speaking and teaching in the name of Jesus. Yes, of course, the lockdowns have been incredibly difficult but they haven't prevented us from continuing to speak about the gospel. Our gospel community has been able to meet online. We've been able to teach the Bible to each other, encourage one another. In fact, we even had someone become a Christian this year through our online Christianity Explored course. This shows that the Word of God has not been locked down. Also, we haven't had restrictions imposed on us because we're Christians, but because we're Melburnians. We've not been opposed for our beliefs. Now, don't get me wrong, there will be times when we'll need to address government overreach. I'm not saying we should never resist restrictions. In fact, I think that's where Acts chapter 5 goes, where we see the apostles are brought before the Jewish leaders again because they disobey the Jewish leaders. But I think it's important for us to remember that Acts chapter 4 comes first. That's what we're talking about today. And the focus is on sharing the gospel, teaching people the word of God. This is our chief priority, and we must not submit to leaders when they tell us that we can't teach about Jesus. So a more relevant parallel for us today is perhaps conflict over moral issues. Take sexual ethics, for example. Many in our society believe that you can sleep with whomever you like as long as you don't hurt anyone. And in fact, that's pretty much what I believed when I was annoyed at Christians back in my first year of uni. Now, in one sense, people are free to hold different beliefs. We live in a secular society, don't we? 
But as Christians, we want people to know the joy that comes from being a Christian and living out the Bible's teachings. We want people to see the benefits of keeping sex within marriage and the the hope that the gospel offers for dealing with unwanted sexual desires or distressing emotions around our bodies and our identity. We believe that Jesus makes a difference. Yet this is becoming increasingly difficult to talk about because the government is telling us what it is that we should believe. They claim to have the ultimate authority to define marriage and sexuality and gender. And so there will be times when we will come into conflict. We might be asked to affirm or support things at uni or work that we just don't feel are right. We might be faced with ridicule or trolling or penalties if we speak our views. And so it's at those times we need to remember what Peter said about who controls us, who defines truth, which is right in God's eyes to listen to people or to him. And it can even be an internal struggle. You know, we may not need to make our stance public. Someone may never ask us. But we should be careful to not let our views be shaped by the government and society at the expense of letting Jesus teach us. You see, out of a desire to stay silent and not make a public fuss, we could easily find ourselves slowly compromising on our beliefs. And before long, we start to approve of what God condemns and we condemn what God approves. So how can we ensure that Jesus is in control of what we believe, that that he has the ultimate authority in our lives? Well, I think one thing that's really helpful for us to remember that we can get from this chapter is that Jesus has been rejected in every single age because he teaches things that go against our natural inclinations. It's not as if this is the first society that hasn't liked what the Bible has to say. It happens in every society. And so it's nothing new if people mock and despise Christian views on morality and spirituality. We shouldn't be surprised when it happens. The Word of God challenges us to live with Jesus as Lord and to obey Him as the ultimate authority. God the Father has made this clear by raising Jesus up from the dead. And He is now the cornerstone of our own lives and of the kingdom of God. So that brings us to our third and final point. Jesus is the only name to proclaim. After being threatened by the leaders one last time, Peter and John are released and they return to the other Christians. They tell them what happened. And it turns into a spontaneous prayer meeting, which reveals to us what gives them the strength to persevere in proclaiming the name of Jesus. You can see the prayer goes from verse 24 right down to verse 31. And it starts with them addressing God the Father as the Sovereign Lord. Uh, Two of their members have just had a running with the Jewish authorities, and so it's good for them to remember who is actually in charge of the world. God is the one who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. But he isn't just Lord over creation, he's Lord over history, which is why they also quote Psalm 2 in verses 25 and 26. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. These words are the first two verses of Psalm 2. 
And they're about the futility of people and nations opposing God's rule. Listen to how God reacts to this opposition as the original psalm continues. This is from Psalm 2. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. God's not afraid because he's in charge. And in fact, he has installed his king, his anointed one, to rule. This psalm was originally about the kings of Israel, but ultimately it points to Jesus, who is the ultimate anointed one, the Messiah. And then in verse 27 of Acts 4, we see a list of all the different people who conspired against Jesus, against God's anointed. And in verse 28, again we see this was all part of God's sovereign plan. And so getting this perspective helps the believers to end end their prayer like this. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. They understand that God has lifted high the name of Jesus and it's the only name for salvation for authority and for proclamation. And this drives them to rely on God for help. And then God answers in verse 31. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. You'll notice in your outline, there's some sub-points, one under each of the main headings. And... I've done that to try to draw out the way in which the different persons, members of the Trinity are at work. First, we see God the Son. He gives resurrection life to all who believe. And then there's God the Father who has appointed Jesus. And finally, there's God the Holy Spirit who empowers us for proclamation, to point others to Jesus. I really think it's that third point that particularly connects us to this chapter. Because we might wonder, how can we possibly be as brave as Peter? How could we speak as clearly and confidently as him? How could we have the confidence that's found in the believer's prayer? But as we look back over the passage, we see it's because the Spirit is at work. He's first mentioned in verse 8. Uh, before Peter speaks to the leaders, he's filled with the Holy Spirit. And he's about to speak to all of these powerful men who run Jerusalem and the nation. And remember, this is Peter. Remember the guy who met a little girl when Jesus was arrested? And she said, do you know Jesus? And he was scared of the little girl and said, no, I don't know Jesus. This is the same Peter who's now filled with the Spirit and boldly speaks before these leaders. And this is actually a fulfillment of what Jesus promised in Luke chapter 21. He'd already said that his disciples would face persecution. But then in verses 14 and 15 of Luke 21, he says this. But make up your mind not to worry beforehand how you will defend yourselves. For I'll give you words and wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. This is why at the start of the book of Acts, they had to wait in Jerusalem for the Holy Spirit to be poured out from heaven so they could then engage in spirit-empowered proclamation. 
But if Peter already had the Spirit, why did he need to be filled again? Why did the other believers in verse 31 have to be filled again? We need to understand there's a distinction between these two acts. The first one is about the Spirit indwelling believers. So he takes up permanent residence within us. If you're a Christian, you have God's Spirit living in you at all times, every day. He helps you to pray to God. He helps you to grow in godliness. And he reassures you that you are God's beloved child. The second act, what's referred to as being filled by the Spirit, is about a special empowering for a specific task. Do you notice that in both verse 8 and verse 31, after these people are filled by the Spirit, they then speak the word boldly. In these examples, they don't do anything spectacular other than preach the name of Jesus. It's such an important lesson for Christians today. See, the Holy Spirit doesn't come and go from your life so that you have to keep calling him back. It's not like, okay, I'm going to go off to church now and I've got to kind of get the Spirit back into me so then I can go and worship God. Instead, he's always in you, but you will particularly experience his work at certain times. And we might even describe it as feeling that you're filled by power or filled by some wisdom so that you can obey and serve Jesus in a particular moment. I imagine many, if not all, of you have had the experience where another Christian has asked you for some advice or you've tried to share the gospel with a friend and you've just felt really nervous. Like, I have no idea what I'm going to say. And so you pray and ask God for help. And then as you speak, you find these words coming to your mind. You share Bible verses and, and answers and helpful illustrations which all mysteriously come together in a way that you wouldn't be able to produce again even if you tried. And you come away from that conversation with a sense that God's Spirit was at work through you to help someone else. That's an example of being filled by the Spirit. And what's so great about this passage is that it actually gives us some ideas on how we might go about being filled by the Spirit when we, when we need that. First, it's about getting your priorities right. So you think about the Spirit's job is to point people to Jesus. And so if we want to be like that too, we need to point ourselves in the right direction first. Fix your eyes on Jesus first. Remember, he is the name above all names. And so grow your vision of the powerful Saviour Jesus, the gracious Lord Jesus, the gentle and lowly Shepherd Jesus. Second, pray to God for help. You see, the disciples ask for boldness and God's answer is to fill them with the Spirit. They didn't say, hey God, can you just fill us with your Spirit? We want to do some miracles, some party tricks, or just want to have this experience that you're still with us, and then we'll go and do what you ask us to do. Now they say, God, we want to go proclaim your name. We need your help. Please help us. And God goes, I'll fill you with my Spirit. Third, get on with obeying God. While the believers at the end of this passage, they did have a clear experience of God's, God's Spirit filling them, they were already obeying God, weren't they? It's not like they were all hiding away, going, we don't know what to do, we just got to wait for a sign from God. 
Once we feel this experience of the Spirit, then we'll go start obeying God and being Christians, being followers of Jesus. No, they're already in the journey of obeying Jesus, serving Him. The Holy Spirit comes in answer to their prayer. And so we don't have to wait for some kind of miraculous feeling, some miraculous experience. Just say your prayers and get out there. We obey God and pray that He would help us by His Spirit. The next time someone asks you, what gives you the right? Remember Acts chapter 4. The apostles didn't claim to have any authority or power or special knowledge. They didn't claim to be the smartest or most religious people. They simply proclaimed the name of Jesus. He is the one who died and rose again to save people. He is the only one that God has appointed as the ultimate human authority. We don't have the right to determine people's spiritual lives or their ultimate destination, but Jesus does. And so it's our job to humbly yet boldly point people to him. His name alone saves. And so we should speak and teach in his name, trusting that God's spirit will help us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your amazing work through your Son, Jesus Christ of Nazareth. We thank you that you have risen him from the dead to show that he's the ultimate authority. He's the one who saves. He's the one who rules. He's the one who has sent the Spirit to dwell in us, to empower us. Please help us to look to him, to be filled by your Spirit every day as we serve him. May we trust in him and obey him. Amen.